Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. And hello again, this is G. Mark Hardy. I'm here with Ross Young for another episode of our CISO podcast on Tradecraft. We're happy that you're spending some more time with us. And today we're gonna be talking about how to influence and persuade. So a couple ideas that we wanna cover today to give you kind of a heads up. How do you build relationships of trust? What are we talking about in terms of persuasion? We'll look at some of the work from Dr. Robert Cialdini and help you understand that. We'll also look at what people care and, uh, and they only care what they care about in a way. So how do we go ahead and make what we're talking about of value to them? And then how will people know that you are concerned about them? And so- Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I think this is gonna be a fantastic show, G. Mark. These are so important to any CISO role, whether it's persuasion influence, or influence, you really can't do your job unless you can have the ability to sell your ideas, get people to get some enthusiasm and optimism about it. You have to be the one to champion the security cause. Well, good point. So in fact, one of the interesting things here, we're talking about persuasion. So a few years back, uh, I ran into a book, or ran across a book, was referred to one by Dr. Robert Cialdini. And uh, Dr. Cialdini is a rather interesting fellow. He is a professor emeritus, a regents professor emeritus of psychology and marketing at Arizona State University. And he had done his research in terms of persuasion. What causes people to do things that other people want them to do? I mean, it's a good question. If you think about it, in life, there's things that we want to get done. There's things that other people want to get done. But sometimes we find ourselves doing things that other people wanted us to do or vice versa. Well, what he had done is he had spent his career trying to figure out why people say yes. And so his book on influence was a real eye-opener for me in that what he did is he identified what are called the six different principles of persuasion. Or if you read his book, he talks about it creating a click whir, just like a machine that if you press a button, you get an automatic response. And part of that conclusion, this is this what holds us together, sort of a glue as a society. And so what we'd like to do is go through these principles of persuasion, explain a little bit, and perhaps talk about how they could be useful to you in your role in cybersecurity and working toward leadership. So Exactly. I'm excited. I think this is going to be a great discussion. So the, if we take a quick look at the uh, principles of persuasion, let me kind of mention them to you first. Liking. If people like you, then they're probably more likely to say yes. The concept of reciprocity. People return favors. If I hold the first door, you're going to probably hold the second door. If I buy the first drink, you're going to buy the next drink. Social proof. People want to do what other people are doing. You look around and you can do that. I mean, we crowdsource our, our purchasing these days by looking for, hey, how many stars does this have? Oh, it's a 4.8 star rating and it's got a thousand people. I guess it must be good. Consistency. 
If I said, you're a very inconsistent person, in our society, that is not a compliment. And so we can appeal to the consistency of somebody to get them to do something that we want them to do. Hey, you've done this before, it's worked for you, why would you wanna change? Authority, people defer to people who are in authority. Four to five dentists surveyed recommend sugarless gum for their patients who chew gum. For those of us who remember those old dentine commercials, the idea of referencing an authority tends to cause people to make a decision. And the one that works great in marketing is scarcity. Hey, there's only four remaining. Sale ends at midnight tonight. Call right now before they're all gone. And all of a sudden, you're in a little panic to go ahead and do something. Marketers understand that. And also, if you will, trolls can figure that out. But you can also use this legitimately. And in his book, he talks about the fact that he's essentially giving you, if you will, kind of a hacking manual to the human brain. He's saying that time and time again in doing his research, he's found out that these principles work over and over again. Some people have learned how to do these intuitively. They don't think about it as part of their natural personality. But for the rest of us, it helps us to understand and study them a little bit. And that's kind of our goal today is to share with you a little bit more insight on how these work. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I think as you look at the first one, liking, that's really important. How can you be that enthusiastic, captivating, talkative speaker that people want to listen to? You bring like some positivity into their life. You're getting them excited and jazzed about a topic. And you're someone who really listens to them, showing that empathy, being able to, to understand what they are trying to do and providing options and, you know, maybe some experience there, that coaching from a senior gray beard mentor type mentality is really helpful for folks. Yeah. And also think about how we communicate with others. So there is a tendency in America and I've traveled most of the world and you go to some countries, you don't get right down to business. You spend some time with small talk, you spend some time on personal, you, you discuss family, and then eventually you work your way around to business. Americans sort of have this image and impression, and probably rightly so, of, all right, time's money, let's just get to work, let's get going. It turns out that in doing so, although we seem to be optimizing our time, psychologically, we have not made that connection. We have not allowed someone to take the time to get to know, to like us. And so as a result, we'll find out that you're probably less likely to persuade the other person to reach an agreement. Even if time is money, some of that time that is well spent is spent in building an initial relationship, trying to understand a little bit more about who this other person is and ideally letting them understand something about you. They might say, hey, I like who this person is. You find common interests and goals. Salesmen know that intuitively. You walk into somebody's office or cubicle and you look around and they say, hmm, Washington Redskins. Oh, are you a Washington fan? Well, actually, I hate Washington. My kid put that up. Well, I kind of think that it, yeah. and all of a sudden they're always kind of smarmy and trying to pretend to be interested in what you're interested in. And the reason those salesmen that are kind of that way get that reputation is they're trying to be liked. They're trying to find some common element. But think about it. If you found that you have some connection somewhere, it works out really well. And it's really great longer term because often what we'll find 
in our industries, in our line of business, is that as a CISO, let me ask you this question. How many people in your organization can screw things up with a computer? All of them, right? <laughs> now, much. how many of them report to you? Almost none of them, which means you don't have the authority to direct people what to do or not to do. You need to influence them and you influence them through the principles of persuasion. And one of those principles is understanding for people who could learn to like you. So it's not forcing someone to like you. It's not you being somebody that you're not. And quite honestly, um, you don't have to get everybody to like you. There's an awful lot of people who get things done that aren't liked anyway. What we're talking about, however, is the tendency for people to be more likely to be influenced by those who are liked. Yeah, I, I love this concept of breaking bread, of sitting with people over lunch, getting to know them a little bit, and really being able to show them a key lesson here, which is they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm -hmm. And think about it in terms of business. If they understand how much you care to enable the business, how much you're focused on learning how they make money, on learning what they need to do to transform, to be more responsive to customers, they're going to see that. And they're going to say, what do I need to do to really get this right? I need to have securities buy off before I'm allowed to do gen two of whatever architecture they're doing. And then in that consulting, because they've, they've gotten to know you, they've gotten you trust you a little bit. They're liking you enough to ask the right questions. And that's when the magic happens. And it, it kind of flows naturally into the next concept of reciprocity, which is people returning favors. And, you know, the, the classic example of you go into the, the new car dealership and they give you a water bottle, right? And so now you're, you're drinking it and you you're like, oh, thank you. And you kind of have to be a little nicer than oh, I'm going to go in and hardcore negotiate with this, uh, you know, trained salesman, right? So having that re reciprocity. And you see this in a lot of the how to win friends and influence people kind of books, which is if you are willing to do favors and help people up front, they'll naturally be inclined to help you. So it's often a very easy win during a lot of your conversations to say, well, what else can I do to help you? You know, is there something you wish you had from security that you don't have today that I could work on? And those little quick wins and offers for help really make the partner that you're trying to improve your relationship want to engage a little bit more. And if you've knocked out a big win for them, he's like, hey, Ross, I got to get this thing out and I need security's approval in an hour. And you take care of that in 30 minutes for him. Now, you can almost call your good old boy network and, and say, hey, I need a favor. I need this thing done in an hour back. Can you help me? And they're going to feel a little bit inclined to help you. G-Mark, have you ever had any experiences with that? Oh, yeah. In fact, I think one of the earliest things I remember in reciprocity you talked about, like a water bottle. So I remember as a young sailor uh, pulling into port in the Philippines. And uh, so you'd walk into a little store or whatever to buy stuff. And the uh, first thing you'll do, a little kid would come out and hand you a San Miguel beer. And the idea was, hey, here's a free beer. 
And the thought is after a beer, maybe two beers, sailors more likely to buy something. But there's also a sense of obligation. I talk about the idea of if you gave somebody a coupon and said, here's a coupon, just come into the back of the store and we'll give you a free pencil. Well, okay, free pencils are nice, but you kind of feel like I ought to buy something. Uh, and it's interesting then is that, as I said, if with the reciprocity, if there's a double door, I hold the first door, typically you're going to hold the second door. You're not just going to slam it in someone else's face. Because as I said, these are sort of the glue that holds our society together. But reciprocity does not have to be proportional. And that is the thing that you want to know. That is why you get free samples. You go to the grocery store and they got a little thing cooking or whatever, try a free sample and it's good. You sort of feel obligated to buy that $3.99, $4.99, $7.99 product, even though they just gave you a nickel's worth of, of value for it, because you sort of feel like you don't want to be that, that person who just takes the stuff and leaves. The other thing is that reciprocity, if you understand, can be helpful in attaining the goals that you're looking for. So Cialdini, and again, I, I, I love his references, I had talked about in doing some experiments about things such as tipping. So we go to restaurants and typically leave a tip unless the service is like really, really horrible. But what influences you in terms of leaving a tip? Well, you know, we have this normal thing, maybe 15%, 20%, 18%, et cetera. But here's a question. If somebody at the end brings you something like a fortune cookie or an after dinner mint, does that influence the tip? So that was kind of the purpose of one of the um, uh, experiments. And I found out that um, does giving somebody a mint influence their tip? Most people would say, kind of no, but if you give the diner a mint at the end of their meal, tips kind of go up about 3%. But what if you say, hey, here's two mints? You figure, well, maybe you double. No, it quadrupled up like about 14%. Okay, it turns out that that turned to have a disproportional effect. But here is a really interesting thing. The waiter left a mint, turned around, and then just turned back a moment later and says, you know what? You folks are really nice. Here's an extra mint. Tips went through the roof, like 23% increase. And so the influence wasn't necessarily what is given, but how it is given. And so that's the critical thing to understand. If you're going to engage reciprocity, think about how do you do this with the other person? If someone says, hey, Ross, I need this in an hour, and you say, well, I'll do it in an hour if you give me something later in an hour, doesn't convey the same value to the other person as to say, hey, I can see this is really important to you. I'll drop everything and make it happen for you. And that's definitely a helpful spouse hack right there. If you're always negotiating back and forth, that's not as good as doing things out of kindness and love, right? Yeah, and, and do it as if you're not keeping score. Now, psychologically in the back, we probably do. Um, and, and I guess it's interesting. I, I, let's, let's not go down the rabbit hole of marriage. Well, I had to laugh the other day, said something to my wife, and she brought up something from 30 years ago. There really is no statute of limitations. Well, you know what you did when we were dating? It's like, oh my goodness. I had, again, it was, she used it to try to make a point. I just laughed at it because I just thought it's like, this is so funny. In any case, back to our business environment, what you find out is, as they say, it's the way that you do it. If you say, I'm here to be helpful. Now, again, you got to be careful because there are sociopaths out there who will simply say, oh, wow, I can abuse this person and, and kind of like the old 
school bully keep taking your lunch money? Uh, and if you see that happening over and over again, then you probably have somebody who's not into reciprocity. And then you have to change your behavior accordingly. Fortunately, that type of behavior often edits itself out when you get into many business environments. And if you are aware of that, you have someone says, watch out for this person. But the reality is most people are cooperative. Show them that you're willing to help them out, do that extra step, and you'll often find out that you'll get something back. But one other thought, when you do somebody a favor, you're both in each other's obligation. It's interesting because there's sort of a tendency that if we invest something, you ever heard of the idea of throwing good money after bad? You put some money into something and then it's not working out so well. So you got to put a little bit more in there to see if you can improve it. If you do a favor for somebody, although you expect them to do a favor back, this is this reciprocity, it also tends to make you more willing to do another one. So this is the danger that's built into reciprocity is if the other person is not going to return the favor, they're going to keep pumping you and pumping you for value until eventually you get smart and you run out of uh, value and they'll move on. That's the margin, but you have to be aware of the fact that not everything works like a formula. This is not going to be a perfect recipe. Yeah, great points. We definitely don't want to be the giving tree that ends up as a stump at the end, right? <laughs> so next thought is the concept of social proof. Well, what do we mean by social proof? Social proof says that we are going to be influenced by what other people do. We kind of look for this consensus. So as I had mentioned before, the thought is, is that if I'm looking to purchase something online, um, I will tend to want to follow what others are doing. We see that in, I guess, QVC. I don't watch QVC, but I've seen it. I'm running in the TV in the background, and you see this little countdown that says, hey, you know, 40 people, 50 people, 80 people have purchased this thing. It's like, wow, all these people buying it. Maybe my number's off. Maybe they're 80,000. But the thought is we tend to be influenced when we see what other people are doing. Kids are that way when it comes to fashion. Mom, I got to have this type of shoe. Or, or running shoe or sneaker or, uh, or whatever the latest fashion is for kids or computer or device or whatever. Why? Because everybody else has one. And so because everybody else has one is at the most basic level, the concept of social proof. But how do we use that effectively in our roles in security? Another interesting ex uh, exercise that was done, and for those of us who used to travel, because I don't do a whole lot of traveling uh, during the COVID days, hopefully things will improve again. But typically when you go to a hotel today, what do you find? You find all the clean towels and things like in the linens, but what is in present in almost every hotel? A little sign asking you, it says, please uh, reuse your towels, or we will only clean the towels every three days, but if you want them every day, give us a call. Um, hmm. Well, how do you influence people from that respect? Because you go back five, 10 years, you use a towel, throw it on the floor, and they come in, they give you clean sheets, clean towels, clean sheets, clean towels. Well, now what we're starting to see is cards that are saying, well, you know, millions of gallons of detergent. And they got a picture like a dolphin on it, like dolphins do laundry. And <laughs> saying that uh, you know, we want to protect our environment and, and you can be a part of it. Well, how effective is that from a social proof if you see a picture of a dolphin? Um, I don't know. I don't hang out with them. I don't work at SeaWorld. I had a cousin who did work at SeaWorld for a few years. 
uh, got his undergraduate degree in computer science and decided to go ahead and be a, a animal trainer at SeaWorld for a couple of years. And his dad, who was a, a professor at that university, was not all that thrilled, but the point was is that Patrick had a spectacularly good time and then went into the office environment. So how about for us? Well, think about it this way. If you're trying to influence this person that is um, having a towel, you say, hey, uh, if you had a car that says, you know, 75% of our guests reuse their towels at some time, so please do that. It turns out that about 26% of people will reuse their towels. But what if they made it a little bit more specific? Like it says, 75% of people who have stayed in this room have reused their towel. That ended up with about a 33% increase in use. And so what happens is that instead of just relying on our own ability to persuade, what we can do is we can point to what other people are doing. That sense of, for not to be a derogatory term, but conformity. We, we want to fit in. And so that fitting in by appealing to people to say, this is what the majority of people are doing and letting people feel that that majority is a reasonable place to be tends to influence people. Now, Ross, with that as a basis, what do you think about that from a security perspective? What is it that we can use social proof for to try to change user behavior? So I would use it to not only change user behavior, but also to change audit behavior. So let's start with the user behavior piece. What are things that we see we need to really ch change in a security awareness program? It probably is something like phishing. And we can look to see how things are happening where, hey, 90% of the people don't click on bad links. You wanna be like those 90% good people, fantastic. And I think that can really drive a positive view of security instead of, hey, here's the you know 5% of folks who are idiots. And, and you don't ever wanna call your, your user population idiots. That's the biggest way to disenfranchise security <laughs> from these leaders who honestly click the link just at a very vulnerable time. And sometimes there's a lot of uh, psychology behind this. So I'll give you a tip that I, I just learned. Did you know if you spearfish someone in the morning, you're less than 10% as likely to have successful spearfishing than if you do in the afternoon? And it's because people's brains are tired and they've been desensitized all day long to go through all their emails. So how can we use some of the, those things to come back and, and train folks is, hey, maybe you should focus on checking emails just during the morning. And then that can actually drive your better behavior. And here's some social proof because we've been able to have studies that show these sorts of things leading to better behavior. Now, when we come back and we focus on the audit example, most organizations are never going to be perfect. There are hundreds of controls and objectives and large frameworks from ISO and NIST. However, what you need to show, is it adequate? if this organization who's going to audit you were to audit everyone else in your industry, would you be average? Would you be below average? Or would you be above average? And as you focus on how can I provide the proof that I am in the top tier, 
that's how you need to defend against audits. You, of course, have to do the things that they're asking you to do, but being able to show what would a reasonable company's expectations be, I think displays social proof. Yeah, and as you, you point out a couple of really good items there. So as you think about that, trying to get people to understand that you can use this kind of as a peer pressure. So if you go back a few years, John Stryford of the State Department was able to go ahead and set up a scoring system to try to influence the system administrators in terms of emphasizing the importance of patching and getting things up to date. And the approach essentially was this, is to set up a scorecard and to let people know how well they're doing individually at first. Well, the scorecard was designed to be pretty easy to achieve an A, and so for the most part, you've been told, hey, you're, you've got an A, you've, you're good on patching. Okay, fine. And then the next phase was, hey, we're going to start to report on everybody to your peers. And everybody's like, I'm okay with that. I got an A. And so when you move to the next phase, the reporting kind of goes department-wide, and everybody sees that, and it's like, okay, fine. I guess we're all doing well. And then the real work actually starts to happen when some of the items that need to be patched, that need to be updated, will up the score. And all of a sudden, you find that your A has decayed to a B plus or a B. And you're like, well, wait a minute, how did I lose my A? Well, look, this thing here that was only one point is now five or 10 points. Let me go fix it. And you get your A back. And then what happened then is you keep on going. So when the Aurora vulnerability came out, what had happened is he has been able to mark that up to 10 to 20 to 40, 80. Basically, you could go from an A to about a D without fixing that one item. It just became huge. The interesting thing was this. Within one week, State Department had a 90% plus patch rate for that. After six months, the Department of Defense was less than 50%. And so using that peer pressure in a way that was set up as almost a friendly competition that social proof, prove that I am doing well to everybody else, was a pretty awesome way to influence people. And Now, uh, if anybody is listening to the term peer pressure, the, the term you need to use in your office is called gamification, right? So we need to gamify how we're looking at metrics. And uh, we have this opportunity to say, here's the 10 divisions. Do you don't want to be in the bottom three. So how do you make sure you're, you're out of that so you look good against your peers to help your organization get resources, get promotions, and other things? So use that term gamification. But what a fantastic idea, G. Mark. I love it. Yeah, so let's go on to the next one, which was the concept of consistency. As I kind of mentioned in the preamble, if I said, Ross, you're a very inconsistent person. That's not viewed as a compliment in our society and probably for good reason. We like to be relied upon. We like to know that people can go ahead and expect what they want them to do. Well, how does that help us from an influence strategy? It turns out that when we talk about consistency or commitments, we are able to influence people's future actions by getting them to make a small commitment now. So what I found out is that instead of saying, hey, we got a meeting scheduled on Tuesday at four o'clock, it just goes into somebody's calendar and Tuesdays and four o'clock could be busy and sometimes people are late, they're delayed and things like that or they cancel it. But if I said, Ross, will you be there at four o'clock on Tuesday for this meeting? That simple way of rephrasing it from here's a meeting to will you be there 
and you say, yes, I will, that has created that little seed of commitment. At which point is Tuesday, four o'clock rolls around and you're looking at all the stuff that's going on and no, I can't turn off my inbox in the afternoon. I got to keep chugging through it. But you're going, wait, I got to meet with Gmart. Uh, yeah, but, but I told him I'd go there. And so what we look for then from commitment is trying to get small commitments out of people early on. And so whether it's something as simple as like at a doctor's appointment where people are notorious for either delaying or missing them or whatever. And so one of the experiments that Cialdini had talked about was a study that says, hey, when you, instead of handing the patient a card saying, here's your appointment, they hand you a blank card and a pen and they let the person write their own appointment down on their own reminder card. That little sense of making that small initial commitment comes through with consistency. And now if we understand that that is part of how humans work, we can think of a whole host of ways to try to evoke small commitments from people from a security perspective that we hope are going to create longer term either behavior changes in our users, or if we're looking to go ahead and fund certain initiatives, we ask things a little bit different way. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I like this ability of asking directly what we want. Not, it'd be nice if, to, if you would do this for me. Hey, I'd really appreciate, just say, will you do this for me? And I think you definitely want to have the rapport up front before you can ask for these things. But when you ask very direct, that will be more likely to achieve the end goal. The other piece that I would say is the consistency is also really important. If you have to do one big project or 10 little projects, it's going to be a lot harder to be successful on one big project than 10 little projects. And now if I have 10 wins for someone versus one big win, I think that's really going to do a lot to build the trust, especially in the early stages. So how can we identify what are little quick wins where I can help somebody? Hey, you need this? Oh, let me write that email up quick. No problem. I'll take care of that. You know, oh, let me schedule that meeting. I'll do that. You know, those little things where you can demonstrate initiative and you can just make little quick successes will be the things that, be, that distinguish that individual from a low performer or medium performer to a high performer, right? It's, I know every little thing, he does a fantastic job. I can start trusting him with more important things. And I think this is exactly where we want to go with our ability to influence and persuade others. And you're starting to see that that uh, commitment consistency blends in a little bit with the reciprocity as you were talking about, being able to say, hey, I'm doing something and making it happen. The next of Gialdini's influence concepts is that of authority, is that people will tend to defer people to people in authority and they often don't even recognize the fact that there's a tendency to do so. So for example, if you go to a doctor's office and they have those diplomas on the wall, it tends to make you get a little bit more credibility to them. Uh, in the military, we have rank structure. And so for those of us who have served in uniform, most of us learn kind of at an early age how to recognize what's on somebody's sleeve or what's on their collar. And of course, the higher the position, 
the more authority that they tend to carry. But that's not what we're talking about from influence. What we're talking about then is, for example, if I had um, a couple uh, people, same pay grade, but one of them in the has a whole bunch of combat medals and ribbons and decoration. The other person doesn't. They may be equal performers, but we tend to defer a little bit more to the person who kind of exudes that additional authority. Well, when I said earlier that uh, if you quote from a marketers that four out of five dentists surveyed recommend sugarless gum for the patients who chew gum, or we recommend that, hey, this is what doctors recommend. This is what experts recommend. We find out that that's subtle, I think, look for it in commercials. Next time you see an ad, you'll find somebody, if it's for a medical thing, there's probably somebody dressed up like a doctor. Now, probably they're an actor. They're not an MD, and they're certainly not in their role as a doctor providing television commercials. But the fact that they're subtly conveying that authority suggests that you know what they're doing. So how does that help us in the cybersecurity world? What's our forms, our visible forms of authority? And to a large extent, that's reflected in things like certifications. And so, for example, I've got, I got my CISSP uh, well over 20 years ago. In fact, I uh, held, tipped it and offered to grandfather me in back, I think it was 1997. Ours is going to be big, G-Mark. This is going to be huge. I said, why would I want initials after my name and pay you money? Well, it turned out he was right. And that what it started really is kind of a cascade of certification. So what happens then is you've got a number of organizations that are out there that provide the certifications. ISC squared is known for their CISSP. SANS for their entire array of GIAC, which is much more of a hands-on type of a cert. Uh, we have the ISACA for things like CISM, CISA, EC Council for certified CISO, uh, Security University provides qualifications and there's more. But what we find out is if you notice, there's some people that you look at their business card or their SIG line and their email, they got 10, 12, 13 different certs after their name. Without saying a word, what do we think? These people know what they're talking about. Yeah, so that's kind of the, the most important thing, but it's also a very dangerous slope. Just because somebody has all those credentials doesn't mean this particular topic they're an expert on. Now, if it's a generic one, they probably do, right? But you wouldn't go to a generalized doctor if you had a very niche ear, nose, and throat issue. You'd go to an ENT specialist. Now, when we also think about authority, I think we need to look for ways we can leverage this to help our business perform better or to sell something to the business. So oftentimes what you see is we need to try a new technology, Right, And there's going to be, let's say, a vendor selection process. And if you can identify from some authority that most Fortune 100 companies use this service, that can be really helpful because their authority in making correct selections lays credence to your ideas. It's kind of the social proof. It overlaps with mm -hmm. it a little bit. But using this, and sometimes you may defer to the magic quadrant or other uh, selective uh, processes where some subject matter expert did some study, provided some details to say, these are the top products in the industry, so that when you go and you sell it, 
it's a lot easier to sell and it's defensible because it's not just you coming up with this idea. It's the industry, it's experts conferring with your opinion and recommending one of these places to go to. Yeah, great, good point. So that brings us to the, the sixth of the six items is scarcity. And we tend to value things that are more scarce. And so uh, we think about um, what is there out there that we might not have access to that might be going away in the future. And so what happens is things such as, remember uh, Gresham's Law? I mean, it was basically, it says bad money kind of drives out good. So what would happen then is that the more valuable commodity tends to disappear out of circulation, um, where if two things have sort of the same face value. Well, if we take a look at from scarcity, what's the principle of persuasion? As I said before, marketers know that. Sale ends at midnight tonight. There's only three items remaining. Or you better get this whole sale now. It's not going to be repeated for another year, or it may never come back again. When we think something's going to go away, we tend to want it. And if you can influence people that way by helping them believe that something is scarce, then they're going to want it all the more. Uh, Bitcoin works in terms of a store of value. Why? Because of the scarcity. There's going to be no more than 21 million Bitcoins because it's going to take until the year 2140 for them all to come out. And although we got over 17 million in circulation, the question is, is that, hey, there's not going to be any more of them other than what's going to be come out and produced at the normal run rate of 50, then 25, and then 12 and a half, and now 6.25 Bitcoins about every 10 minutes. And so what we see then is an increase in value from what was essentially the Bitcoin pizza, two pizzas for about 10,000 Bitcoin back at around 2010 or so, to today where we're looking at about $11,000 per Bitcoin. And when you ask the guy who paid 10,000 Bitcoin for two pizzas, like, how do you think now? He says, they're really good pizzas. It's the only way you can do that psychologically. So how do we make scarcity work for us in the security world? Is there things that we have that are gonna be going away? Something that suggests that um, the opportunity may be a vanishing one. And as a result, people want to go ahead and have access to something. And so as I, as I think from a scarcity perspective, uh, if I'm trying to get people to sign up for something, we often will see that to say, hey, there's only 10 seats remaining at this webinar. There may in fact be 10,000 seats remaining, but if people say there's only 10, but let's think about it from our role as a CISO, what are those things that we want people to be able to do? We want to influence their behavior, but we can do so by essentially making them believe that this opportunity is not going to be here forever. They better move now, take advantage of it. What are your thoughts? Any of Yeah, so I think scarcity of time, right? Certainly you could say this deal is only good for this amount of time before it's going to increase in price. Mm -hmm. right? That can be a really important thing when you're trying to buy products with use or lose money at the end of the year. Another thing I think with scarcity is also the promotion opportunities, right? Right now we're going to create secure developer training. And if you take the secure developer training now, you'll be some of the first of the cohort to actually get this and be promoted because of these things, right? So it's that that scarcity of, 
you could be the limited set of folks who've distinguished themselves above all the other peers, right? And I, I think that creates value. It's this idea of you have 100 people competing for one house. Well, that's going to drive the price of the house up, right? But it's the same house, right? Nothing's mm-hmm. changed. And, and you think of how they've done this in the diamond industry or in the water bottle industry. Uh, you know, it's, it's still the same water. You know, half the time they just put a different label on the plastic. But it's really important when people understand what's important and there's some period of time or fixed quantity when it won't be as valued. Yeah, and and so when we think about it now, what we've got is a number of different elements. The liking, reciprocity, social proof, consistency, authority, and scarcity that we've kind of teased out individually. And again, if you want more information on this, uh, this website, influenceatwork.com is Dr. Cialdini's site, and they've got a tremendous number of resources. Buy his book. It's, it's awesome. It's well worth the price. But as usual, we like to add a little extra value here. So I'm going to provide a seventh that's not on his list. Ooh, do tell. Did you know that 86.4% of statistics are made up. <laughs> yeah, we think about it. I think Don Parker first said that. And the point is what is precision. If you go through and you go and you're trying to influence somebody, you're presenting to executives or a board. And if you say, well, most users will click on this. Most companies do this. That's not very precise. But if I come through and if I say 71% of organizations that are successfully avoiding this type of risk do this behavior. I think that's more influential. Now, this is my own theory. I'm not a psychologist and I don't have the degrees that, that Dr. Cialdini does, but very much like um, Stephen Covey and came out with The Eighth Habit, although it's his son's book, I believe, um, Stephen uh, B. Covey. But the seventh thing is precision. So think about that. That is up as a proposal for everybody to say when you're providing your information to people, it's easy, it's fast, and apologies, it's lazy to just use terms like most, more, many, some, nearly all. But if you just simply go ahead and change your thinking to say, can I turn that in? Now, don't make the numbers up, okay? And as as I say, remember Don's advice, 86.4% of statistics are made up. Or as Mark Twain said, there's lies, they're damned lies, and then there's statistics. But think about being able to put some fidelity behind it. In my opinion, what you're going to be able to do is better convince a numbers-oriented executive. In my MBA program, we talked all about making sure you can quantify the value across the board. It's hard to quantify with qualitative words. It's a lot easier to quantify with quantifiable numbers. And that's your bonus for the, uh, this podcast here is some ideas about how you can add that to your strategies to be an effective influencer in your positions. Yeah, that's really good. And this is exactly how you see the industry starting to shift with FAIR. How do we put some confidence levels to know how big the risk impact is going to be, right? Folks, sometimes you say, well, this could be a $1 to $20 million uh, breach. Well, that's a pretty big delta, right? But if we could say we have a 90% confidence rate 
that this is going to be about $5 million because the Verizon data breach report identifies the number of records costing X amount. We're in this particular sector and we can really come into to a focus and, and drive that precision. Now you have some defendable numbers and you're going to be perceived as an expert. They're going to say, this guy knows what he's talking about. I really agree. Let's, let's think about this a little bit more. So these uh, different Cialdini uh, factors, if you will, these principles of persuasion are really helpful. I totally think they are something that can help anybody in their career. So take a little bit of time to reflect on, on the six. Liking, recipro reciprocity, social proof, commitment and consistency, authority and scarcity. And if you like it enough, support his research, buy his book, listen to his uh, podcast, read his HBR articles. I think you're going to have a good time with uh, Cialdini. So do you think we've been effective? Have we influenced people listening to our podcast to want to go ahead and get a little bit more knowledge about influence? We'll find out. It's sort of a self-referential objective here. But uh, yeah, today I think we've, we've covered something that I found over the years has been extremely helpful. And as you learn these and you start to incorporate them in your thinking, Again, the danger is this could also be used for evil. Uh, this is how you can go ahead and both influence people for, for good and to try to get people to do things maybe they shouldn't be doing. So use it for good. Use it for the benefit of your organization. Uh, use it to be able to go ahead and reestablish your, or establish yourself as a better manager, a better leader, because people are then going to be compelled more on their own desires to follow you. And they may not even understand why because you've engaged this click were type of automated behavior that Cialdini has helped under, uh, you know, describe and gives you some of the tools to be much more successful. Great. Well, that's it for our show today. I think this has been a fabulous discussion. Remember, use persuasion for good. Don't use persuasion for manipulation. And we invite you to continue listening. We're going to keep talking about other topics such as what are the different types of executives and how do you need to tailor some of your approaches to help them? What are some techniques such as problem framing that you can use to help uh, overcome some of those skeptics and audiences and be more effective in the show? Thanks again for listening today and continue your CISO tradecraft. This is G. Mark Hardy and Ross Young signing off. Thank you. Take care.